Good morning. Good morning. It is it is so the morning. <laughs> it's very morning. Yes. I had to set an alarm to make sure I made this and I hated you a little bit when it went off. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. When do you normally sleep until? Uh, it's not that I normally sleep later than this. It's just that I got like really bad sleep last night. And so like normally I'd be like, oh, screw it. I'll sleep a couple, you know, an extra hour or whatever. And then it was like, no, I have a podcast. Yeah. Mm, my apologies. I think I like these morning things, though. I mean, it. this is kind of my, my freshest time of day in a sense when like caffeine first courses through my veins and uh, <laughs> get my first like bit of creative inspiration. That's when I jump on the mic. I don't know. I think it I think it works for me. Yeah, yeah, I think it's actually uh, probably normally a reasonable time to record. I will do my best. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I wrote this tweet yesterday. Yeah, it went uh, and it was, Yeah, and it was funny. <laughs> as I was writing it, or like once I had like finished it, and like as I had tweet, I was like, I think this one's going to be popular. I just yeah, had this sense. Just felt it. Just I felt almost, it. I almost announced it. Um, <laughs> but I was like, I think this is, I think this is a good one. It's blown up, which is cool. That's fun. It's like a fun little. Uh, dopamine adventure to go on yeah i bet i mean your mentions are probably um completely trashed right now yeah it was at uh 375 impressions when i looked at it Jeez, before this wow yeah it's kind of crazy has it driven any sales <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know we, we did get actually a bunch of trial signups yesterday so maybe yeah i mean uh, <laughs> uh, I, do, I do need to set up better tracking for that like to find out like are people starting trials after coming from twitter right yeah I think I think I can back that out, but I'm I'm not sure I have that set up. Put that in like the the PR stunts category. Just yeah, there's, exactly. there's your new marketing marketing play. Just uh, <laughs> just create viral popular tweets. tweets. Yeah, yeah. My guess is that probably no, it did not do that much, but mm. that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awareness, Ben. Awareness, at least. Yes. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I wrote this tweet. This tweet was about like was me kind of grousing about the enterprise sales process, and I wrote it because I'm in that process again. I'm in this interesting philosophical position once more, which is talking to a very large company who maybe would give us a lot of money, but they want to write into the contract we would sign with them a ton of requirements. Like, we're going to agree to like conduct an annual training on social engineering. What? Why? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to make sure we don't get hacked by a social engineering. Oh my gosh. And there's like there's like three or four things like that. They're like you agree to annually or quarterly do these things. So it's not even just like we're gonna like, you know, satisfy this requirements once. It's like you're committing to do this as long as we are your customer. This is why big companies can't have nice things. Yeah. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm trying to figure out like, do we say yes to this? And if we do, I think the way we say yes is like we can put this in the agreement if we put this number in it. And just name a number that's so huge that we're like, well, if they say yes to this, I guess we'll, we'll we'll do the social engineering training. I know you've done this a little bit in the past, but like with this one, have you pushed back and said like, no, this is this these are our precautions. This is what we do to make sure that we're staying secure, and like this is all we're going to do. Deal with it. I have done that sometimes. It works okay. This particular company came to us six months ago or something, and we're saying like similar things, and we were kind of like yeah, no, we're, we're probably not going to do this. And they're like, okay. And they just kind of couldn't buy it. They gave us, sent us a list, which is like, this is the increased security requirements document. And like, there's like 50 things on it. And so it may be that we could say like, we're not going to do items, you know, these ones uh, and, and still get it through. A blanket, no, I think is not going to work. So some of them are good. Like, oh yeah, uh, yeah, we, we probably should write up a disaster recovery policy. That's sure. And that's a one-time investment mostly. But some of them would be definitely be pretty annoying. Man, 
It's tough. I mean, it's it's interesting that you're having to deal with so much of this so early on, but I guess it speaks to the pent up demand for your product across the whole spectrum of businesses, right? Because a lot of times early on, you just kind of attract kind of the early adopter, small companies that are move fast and don't care about all the red tape. But man, you're seeming to be just like running into a pile of red tape everywhere. And I guess it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a good problem to have that like... I mean, mostly not. Like most people just buy the app and then they try it and they like it. Um, it's only these like much larger companies, or it's mostly these bigger companies. It definitely is a nice problem to have. It's great. It's like, it's, it's wonderful. And also to have the freedom and the like, there is enough other growth that we could just say no to this company and like not feel like we're being totally stupid. Is there something particularly holding you back from just taking a hard line and saying like, nope, not going to do that? Like, are you trying to figure out, are we the type of company that that services these types of requests or like what's your thought process around that like, yeah i guess so like uh, uh, is it a deeper philosophical question maybe like that might need to be like a thing that we decide i guess or like sort of continually reevaluate I, I feel like we have sort of already decided like yeah we're not going to mess around with this but then it's like well this person is sort of implying or like has said not that i think he has the power to but like you know we were considering this as like the standard solution so it's like okay well so like how many hundreds or thousands of seats do you need it could just be like kind of a ridiculous number potentially. But it does kind of create this weird situation where it's like, all right, the person I'm talking to is like a senior engineering manager. And so this person probably wants to use it with their team of 30 or something. For me to come back with a contract that's like, yes, we're starting at six figures, just so you know, is a little bit like, wow, but like my team, it's like, yeah, I know, sorry, but like these things that we would have to agree to, like I basically have to, you have to pay us as if you're giving it to everyone kind of, or to make it worth our, our time. Yeah, yeah. Have you considered consulting at all with with like an enterprise salesperson who could maybe because I have been doing a, a little bit of that. I know a guy who a good friend of mine who does he doesn't do like hardcore enterprise sales, but he does. He, he's kind of adjacent to that. The stories I hear from him are pretty crazy about just the, the game of chess involved with mm -hmm. with getting the right players in the room and, and making sure you're. I don't know, just like getting into the right avenues in an organization. And it sounds really complicated and way above my <laughs> my skill set, you know? Yep. Um, yeah. I, I've been chatting with uh, Matt Wensing, who's done a lot of this, like enterprise oh, yeah. sales yeah, he's at Risk Pulse. Um, and he's super helpful in this regard. Um, and yes, it is very much a chess game. Like there's a, well, there's a lot to it, basically. And so I guess one of my concerns is like, this is not like a casual thing. You can just be like, yeah. And also we'll do enterprise sales on the side. Right. It's kind of like, no, like... You need, to see, you need to see RM and you need to have like a process and stuff, I think. Well, because I think what, what could end up happening is you find yourself, you know, six months deep on like, all right, we're doing the PDFs, we're faxing in the things, we're, we're doing that whole thing with procurement. And then like out of out of nowhere, another another stakeholder pops into the equation and just like blocks everything. And and like you may find yourself. I mean, it is a little bit of risk, I guess, in like going down a path, investing the time and effort in hopes of getting this big chunk of revenue, I would be concerned about like missing some chess piece and then the thing <laughs> yeah. blowing up, you know? Sure. Uh, yeah. I think that's, that's very possible. And, and I've seen these deals. They always seem like they're about to close. So far, it's like, it's like oh, we're, we're, they really seem like they really want it. And like, we're just like one step away and they've told me the next thing. And, and like, still, it's like, you know, six weeks later and it hasn't finished. It's like, okay, yeah. I just, wow. A little bit like selling a company. <laughs> mm, mm -hmm. I believe it. Yeah. So, I mean, the simple thing to do is just be like, yeah, we, we're not going to mess with that. Like, we're doing fine without this. Let's not, let's not worry about it. Maybe if I did put like 
the biggest number I could think of on there that I wouldn't laugh out loud when I did. Maybe they'd say yes to it and like, is, uh, it might be worth it. Yeah, yeah. The nice thing is this company seems to be okay with like this idea of we're going to put these requirements in the agreement and then you're required to satisfy them. But like also in the agreement will be the price. So we're not going to have you do all this upfront work and then discover like, oh, actually, JK, we don't, we don't want to pay that. Have you gotten any of these larger companies to like agree to pay for a proof of concept? Like, we'll do this for a few months. You pay me, you know, whatever, 20 grand, whatever, some some meaningful chunk of money for them to like test it out. And then also that, I guess, gives you a little bit of upfront cash to offset the time and energy spent on all the other requirements. I haven't tried that yet. We did something kind of like that once. That could work, I think. Yeah, there's this whole playbook of what you do and when you're selling to large enterprises that I, I don't really know the moves in it. So. Yeah, oh, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> I get that like there probably are good reasons for a lot of these things, but man, this it just feels like so much friction in the system. Yeah. yeah. I don't think there's like probably net benefit being gained here. It's probably just cost for everyone involved. This is traditional business, isn't it? This is why there's layers and layers of middle management and paper shuffling frustrating i'm happy for this company to sign up at our normal plan and like not sign anything and not do any back and forth and like pay us less money i'm fine with that but like they're like no no no, we're gonna make it really annoying and i'm like well i'm gonna charge you a lot and they're like yep that's how it goes it's like but like you could just not make it annoying they're like no we have to make it annoying <laughs> oh, okay it's <laughs> oh, so funny another thing is so we're still working on the scaling stuff uh made some good progress uh the other day we discovered something that we were doing that was wrong so we don't know if we like fully solved it but we did at least kind of uncover something, which is we had been upgrading our Heroku dinos, like much bigger boxes, but we had not been scaling up like the number of workers, like the number of processes uh, on them. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we basically, we had like two Ruby processes running on like an, an enormous beefy box <laughs> and we're like, why isn't it getting better? Yeah. yeah um, and yeah. like part of our problem seems to be how many action cable connections you can have going to a single instance. And so like spreading out to more app instances helps a lot, it seems. So that was like kind of like a big find uh, that seems to seems to have hopefully maybe fixed it. That intuitively makes sense because I in, in my experience scaling Ruby applications, it was very much a, a game of uh, more processes, not more fake threads in Ruby because true parallelism in Ruby is basically not a thing, you know. So, yeah, that seems intuitively like you're on the right path cool yeah seems good and we also have been doing some things like shipping some stuff to like make the load from the client lower like just like oh we can ping this endpoint less frequently or we can you know we're actually not really using this so let's stop making this request that kind of thing so we're like kind of tidying the house a bit and had a nice experience where i emailed everybody all the customers and said hey just so you know we know about these issues that are happening uh, we're on it in case you're curious we think it's this and we've been doing this to resolve it and the response was super positive which is really cool like a lot of support came from people like people even like even asked like literal support being like hey if you want i've done a lot of ruby scaling let me know if you want help which is awesome but also like people really responded positively to the detail like they, they liked being told like what what the problem was and what we thought we did, were doing to fix it and like they're like oh this is so cool i love hearing about this stuff yeah yeah no that's really good it's like i think that's a solid lesson that can be learned from i feel like it was salesforce maybe in their early days like suffered a ton of scaling challenges and their initial approach i think was to 
be cagey about it, I think, and like not not be fully transparent, try to kind of paper over things like, yeah, we're, we're, we're figuring it out. And then I think they made they made kind of a shift towards radical transparency and like, yep, here's all the like we realize we're failing right now in these certain areas. And it's obviously not that bad for you. But like like they were under some serious scaling problems and they decided to to kind of just go all in on like full transparency. We'll give you, you know, metrics that are clearly like failing the the threshold that's acceptable and we're working on fixing them that just totally flipped the perception of their customers. And like, even though they were clearly like not living up to what they sold to people, they were like, this is our top priority and we're working on it. And people were generally understanding um, mm. even, even for I, I a, believe that. Yeah. I, I feel yeah. like there's so much, there's such a strong impulse for some reason to like adopt this like really weird corporate speak when you talk on behalf of a company that's it does not feel genuine and like doesn't share details and is like just this kind of like weird false kind of front and i feel like the more that we lean into the opposite direction the better it goes yeah because i mean it, it makes sense like if someone's being very corporate or formal like you, you start to lose trust right you suspect that they're not telling you the whole story and then when you lose trust in the provider then then like people don't give you the benefit of the doubt but if you've been clearly like sharing all the details and and being very upfront it's like that trust um trust is built mm -hmm. is worth something yeah and I, i've said this a million times but like i i do feel like our, our smallness is is a strength like the them knowing it's us the three co-founders working on it and like hey we're developers too and you're a developer so i'm going to share some technical details and you're probably going to geek out on a, a little bit because it's interesting uh it's just that's just a great thing about this particular business and, and time of our development so yeah i think that's uh, that's it for me what's going on with you yeah, cool i just had a cool experience in an i think it's anacotic chamber have you ever heard of this I've heard of them, yeah. <laughs> so, a friend of mine just like randomly, I heard about this place in Minneapolis. It's like an old, previously like a recording studio that was pretty big in the seventies. Like uh, Prince spent some time there. Bob Dylan recorded "Blood on the Tracks" there. Like some some big names coming through this place. But then it, I think, the studio eventually shut down and then got bought by this laboratory. And this guy seems kind of eccentric who owns it. That just like off the cuff randomly one day purchased an anacotic chamber from some big company in Chicago that was like getting rid of it. So for those who don't know, it's basically a, a chamber where there's almost no sound they can like measure it. So this one clocks in at like minus nine decibels or something. So, and zero decibels is, is kind of the threshold of, of human perception of sound. So, so anyways, like they just kind of give tours of their facility and then let you sit in the chamber for 20 minutes and uh kind of experience that hmm. uh so what was it like ah uh, it was um it was pretty wild i think so there were two senses deprived in there one was hearing obviously like no sound and the other was like they turn off the lights and it's literally the darkest room i've ever been in there's like no light creeping in at all so it's it's a weird sensation to close your eyes open your eyes and it'd be exactly the same mm -hmm. <laughs> so you know 20 minutes i think they say like around 45 minutes is the point where you really like your senses start to like give up on pulling in any external data and start kind of making stuff up so it's people people will sometimes hallucinate in these uh chambers or you know start to just like hear phantom noises that aren't real i didn't experience any of that but it was strange like sitting there and you could i could just feel my ears like trying to hear anything like even like ear hairs moving inside of my ear canal like is there any sound is there any sound um it's pretty wild. Hmm, that's cool. Yeah. 
that's like kind of my dream space is an extremely quiet room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think there is such thing as as too quiet. Yeah, people generally, after spending enough time in these things, get very uncomfortable. But I was just more geeking out on it. Like, I don't know. I'm just curious what my what are my eyes and ears going to do? And in, when you're in that much darkness, things almost start to appear very bright. Like you start seeing purple, like a purple green haze and then like a kind of a the thing with the, like the globs of gel in them. <laughs> um, lava lamp, like a lava lamp. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That type of thing. So anyways, that was just an anecdote completely unrelated to business, but a uh, fun, fun thing I did. Let's see. On the business front, I've been working on kind of API design for the payments plugin for Static Kit. It's a lot of complexity to figure out how to manage well. Um, so you're kidding. I've been trying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unsurprising, right? Especially with the uh, strong customer authentication stuff, the European regulations, which I think you know that's kind of the direction that Stripe is moving for all their APIs. Like their their regular charges API is not not officially deprecated, but they're basically like, don't use this anymore. So yeah, I mean, I've been kind of diving into that complexity and like playing around with what the API could look like and and how can I make it elegant. And that is kind of the one of the tricky parts of this is like like you can't really rush good API design. You kind of have to since you're merging a lot of different requirements and you're trying to I'm trying to think about like how can I how can I start with something simple but not lock myself into inflexibility where I would have to like immediately deprecate my own my own API or my own library to to support more powerful use cases in the future Um, it's a lot of like stuff to try to try to foresee but also not like implement out of the gate and just kind of leave room for that slogging through that and I've I've decided to have like kind of a background thread task going as I'm working through that so spend a little bit of time on that and then kind of work on another another secondary project that I've been wanting to wanting to work on on the first thing do you have uh, techniques or like a strategy for getting yourself in the right mind space for that kind of design um so far what I've been doing is I've been starting with stripes docs and they have a lot of good like different ways of explaining how pieces work together so they have some guides on like this is high level how how you know strong customer authentication works and how these payment flows work and so generally i will kind of skim through that to get my mind back in the place of like okay this is this is the the basic workflow that i have to support and then i'll generally dive into the the lower level documentation around like okay what are the types of fields that i need to be support and kind of writing out as best i can what are the different use cases that people or what are the basic payment flows that people have? You know, one-off charges, one-off charges plus upsells, uh, subscriptions plus one-time charges, um, installment payments, and kind of write all these things out. So I do a lot of like whiteboarding and or scratching down in my notebook and trying to like see where do these use cases overlap and what things can, you know, seem unique but then can kind of reduce down into shared concepts. And luckily, like Stripe's API, they've done a lot of that work in crafting their own API. You're not always that lucky when you're dealing with with external providers. A lot of times you have to figure out how to make that, how to tame that complexity. And fortunately, Stripe has done a lot of that work. So I can kind of, it's going to be an easier mapping to their API than maybe some other cases, just because they're, they're really thoughtful. So yeah, that's kind of my, kind of my process. And then I just kind of start writing down like in an, in a code editor 
proposed ways to configure this and like how does this feel like i want it to i want the configuration to feel intuitive i don't want it to be too verbose so like how can i what conventions and defaults can i bake in so that ideally you just have to provide like a few a few pieces of configuration and the defaults are really make a lot of sense and then when things get more complex how can i still make the configuration manageable it's a lot of just kind of playing around with json and and how it feels and stuff mm-hmm. nice yeah deciding like is this going to be a single thing or an array i feel like mm-hmm. it's a big part of that oh yeah yep <laughs> right i've been bitten by that enough in the past of you know, more in database design than configuration design but like oh this should have been a one-to-many <laughs> classic yep yep it's been a good exercise i i still hope to um to kind of have something built in the month of december around payments so okay so, yeah nice yeah well you got some time a little bit yeah a little bit of time a little bit of time cool um yeah and so then the background task i've been working on i wanted to do this for a little while and it's I feel like not too big of a task now that my user interface has been simplified quite a bit when I moved to the config file. But basically, I want to get most of the interface moved over into my my Next.js application, which is kind of powers the, the marketing site right now and the doc site. So I don't know if you've noticed, like, Stripe is a is a big inspiration for this. But when you go into their docs, you know, it's like they're aware of who you are, what account you're logged in under, and they will embed stuff right into their docs that show you, like, Here's a sample code. You can literally run this and it's wired up to your account. And so that's kind of what I'm going for. I've been thinking about that. And then I'm like, you know, now that my user interface is pretty much just like a read-only view of the state of the world for your account, this is not that difficult to to get moved over. It's not like a bunch of CRUD operations that I have to re-implement that would take a bit more time. So so I've been experimenting with that. And I do want to like call out this technology that I kind of stumbled into as I got into static sites and some of the newer technologies, but like, so Next.js, they're kind of a, this is not even a term that I was really aware of, but like isomorphic JavaScript or universal JavaScript, it's, it's to me like a, a really great blend of a single page application where you have a lot of stuff powered by front end JavaScript and page transitions are super fast and snappy but also like takes care of all the downsides of a single page application. So like when you hit when you hit a page for on initial load and it requires you to load data, like it'll do it server side for you. It'll behave like a server rendered application on initial page load and then subsequent page loads will be client side rendered. And there's basically no additional work on your behalf to make that happen. It just it just knows how to do it. So like when you compile a Next.js application, it will say like, oh, this page we've detected that you require initial data for this. So uh, when you deploy it, uh, we will like basically turn this into a Lambda function that will do some server stuff and spit out um, a server rendered HTML page for you. It's pretty cool. Like I, I've always been very leery of single page applications and I've seen people implement marketing sites before using like all angular and you load them and it's just like loading spinners everywhere. And it just is terrible, you know? And so the fact that this is like um, this is kind of the best of both worlds is pretty amazing and like kind of snuck up on me as like a, a front end technology that I was not really aware was a thing until I started playing with it. So hmm. nice, well, that's cool. I'm still a little bearish on uh, a lot of client side JavaScript personally. Yeah, yeah, rightfully so. Yeah, I just I was using a, a pretty complicated JavaScript app and it's just like oh there's a little bug oh there's another little bug oh there's another little bug and like this is like a, the company that was doing it well like overall it was a great product but it was just like 
I just see like lots of little state things, especially when I'm using like a you know an app with a lot of that. Yeah, yeah, it's so hard to do right. I think one of the things that and I kind of took a similar approach with level too was like I'm going to err on the side of treating this, treating my pages like they're like they're just regular server rendered pages. So I think a lot of the trouble comes in when people try to share too much state between pages and reuse stuff in the name of performance. The reason why server rendered applications are so reliable in one sense is because you're constantly throwing away state and regenerating it on page load, right? Like the server the server sending down fresh HTML with fresh state every single time you change page, right? You can definitely accomplish the same thing with a, a client rendered application. You're not going to get all the performance gains that are possible by like retaining state on the front end and sharing it between pages. But that's something that you can work towards very carefully. And I feel like that's that's where people get into trouble is when they start just aggressively doing that out of the gate and then things start to get a little hairy. So mm-hmm. state is always the it's always the problem. Like state is the source of so much complexity, I feel like in programming. Like and you can tell because you can solve so many problems with software by restarting them. Like, yeah, that means it was a state <laughs> problem. And that exactly. means yeah. <laughs> totally so yep careful watch out for that state that's the yeah. dangerous part yeah yeah absolutely this is kind of like my job in like getting to know my ecosystem well and the people i'm selling to is like constantly learning learning some of the newer technologies even though i would tend to uh, you know i'm still like a monolith guy like I, <laughs> I like server rendered applications so i kind of straddle both camps but i also feel like um you know it's an important part of my um, getting to know my customer base well is like learning the technologies that they're excited about. And oh, so. for sure, yeah, it definitely seems like you should be in, deep in this world. Yep, yep. And so, and to that end, actually, relatedly, I a couple of weeks ago was pleased to be invited to present at Zeit's uh, conference called Backendless Conf. So I talked to them in the last week, like, oh, what, what do you think it should be? And uh, we got on the subject of potentially doing an art of product special recording for the conference. Mm-hmm. It's going to be an adventure. It's going to be an adventure. So that'll be on uh, December 14th. And actually, after the show, you and I can uh, talk more details. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Oh, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, and I think the schedule, the official schedule will be out soon. But uh, yeah, check it out back in com, And Ben and I will be there. So it should be a good time. Should we um, troll them by just talking about backends the whole time? <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> I've written a lot of them. Our app, yeah. is, our app is called yeah. Backend, actually. <laughs> Here's why you should consider using a Rails monolith for your next project. Mm-hmm. I will race you to developing an app. <laughs> Very funny. JK, mm-hmm. no, great. Uh, front ends, amazing. <laughs> Everything should be in JavaScript. Uh, no, it'll be good. It'll be good. Yeah, I'm, uh, it'll be fun. Um, and uh, congrats, by the way. It means you're making some waves in that world. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I was, um, That's I was a good very... Sign. I was very thrilled to be included on the on the lineup. There's a seems to be a really good uh, really good set of people from the industry along alongside me. So nice, it's pretty awesome. Cool. Anything else going on? Uh, no, I think that's it for me. Cool. Let's wrap it then. Let's do it. Notes of the show. Notes of the show can be found at artofproductpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. See ya. <laughs>